Welcome back to the Outcomes Rocket. Saul Marquez here, and today I have the privilege of hosting Brian Fuller. He is the Chief Executive Officer at Integrated Care Solutions, a post-acute care management company based in the Northeast that partners with physician groups, practices, and hospital systems to manage post-acute care under a variety of payment structures, including bundle payments and ACOs. He's a nationally recognized thought leader on the impact and importance of post-acute care in new healthcare reform environments and a leading expert on care integration and partnerships development across the continuum, including evaluating and implementing new payment initiatives such as bundled payments and ACOs. This is the era of value-based care and, and what he's honed in on is making value-based care work but also risk sharing programs. Uh, and and uh, many of you are, are, could be on either side of the coin there, you know, trying to implement a program at your hospital, or maybe you have an innovative idea uh, at your company and you're looking to provide unique solutions to, to hospitals. Well, today's conversation is going to be really interesting because Mr. Fuller has some really great insights, and we'll be diving into those. Uh, he's authored publications in the American Hospital Association, NPR, U.S. News and World Report, Hospital and Health Networks, and more. So I am uh, truly privileged to, to have you on the podcast, Brian. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Brian, uh, talk to me a little bit more about the genesis of it all. What what got you into healthcare? Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, what what initially attracted me to the industry was the balance between the skills, capability, and experience of really running a business, which obviously healthcare is a business. However, it also has that altruistic side of it where you feel like that business has a purpose, a, a greater purpose, if you will. And that the things you do impact people, um, whether it's their quality outcome, their experience, um, their, their overall health and well-being in, in their life and what they aim to get out of their life. Um, it's that piece of, of helping people that kind of keeps you grounded in the mission of the everyday, even though the intellectual and um, other challenges run very much like a or any complex uh, multifaceted business yeah no I, I i totally agree brian it's it's one of those awesome places to work where you can make a big impact and feel like you're you're having a positive impact on people and and and, and so as you've spent time both on the provider side and also on the business side of of healthcare, uh, today is, is, is different. I mean, a lot of things are changing. The ACA, it's been a while since it's been implemented. Some things have worked, some haven't. What do you think is a hot topic that needs to be on health leaders' agendas and how are you approaching it? Yeah, so there's lots of them. You know, that's the complexity of healthcare, right? Whether it's reimbursement changes or staffing challenges, investments in technology, um, the push to quality and, and value and how to pay for that. There's, there's no shortage of things that are on um, health system leaders' agenda. The one that I think touches closely to what I spend my day doing is 
really this pursuit of value and, and how do you define value and how do the payment mechanisms follow that definition. Uh, the, the analogy kind of post ACA was, you know, one foot in the canoe and one on the dock. And unfortunately, as we sit, you know, almost a decade later, um, we haven't been able to move either foot. <laughs> we may yeah. be stretching a little bit further than we were eight years ago, but um, most every health system leader I know still balances that reality every day of one foot in the canoe and one foot on the dock. And um, it's a challenge and it, and it permeates every aspect of, you know, strategy, operations, financials, you know, the entire model that makes healthcare work. It, it leaves no stone um, untouched in that transition. And so, you know, the good part about that is it's challenging and it's, it's interesting. It makes the work interesting. Um, the hard part is, you know, I think for many in healthcare, we're kind of ready to move one of those feet, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, the, that's uh, on point. And, and what do you think? I mean, what, where are we going to go? Well, if you had a crystal ball, what would you say is the direction? Are we going to put both feet in the canoe or are we going to take that foot and put it back on the dock? Yeah, yeah. So I think we have to put both feet in the canoe. Um, you know, one, we can't afford health care uh, at the rate that expenditures have been growing over the last decade or so. And then secondly, we know we have the demographic shift occurring, which is going to make, you know, the total healthcare spend go up, even if we don't do anything um, more efficient. And so um, that double-edged sword, if you will, that more people are entering the system and per capita spending isn't um, going down, it may be slowing, but it's not going down, just creates an economic reality where there aren't enough dollars to come out of the budget that we would need to afford healthcare at its current rate with what we've got facing us in terms of demographic shifts. Having said that, I give several talks um, throughout the year. I was in DC last week actually um, discussing post-acute care policy with the long-term care pharmacy group. And you know, one of the slides I like to, to show um, most recently is, you know, why is today any different? I feel like we've become a little bit immune to the, the term value-based care or value-based healthcare. You know, we've heard it now seven or eight years at most every major industry conference or meeting. And, and so you get a little bit immune to hearing it um, in the background. And so I like to point out why today is, is different. Um, and I do think we're in a different place. Um, there's a couple of things that kind of point to that. So one, you know, alternative payment models are being introduced at their most rapid rate, and we're seeing participation uh, greater than we ever have before. If you just look at large programs like the Accountable Care Organization program or bundle payments through uh, CMMI's now BPCI advanced program, uh, participation numbers in both of those now far outpace anything we have seen previously. Medicare Advantage penetration and enrollment are at their highest levels ever. Uh, so that, you know, that Medicare Advantage mindset or managed population mindset obviously infuses certain reimbursement and behavior dynamics into a market. Um, and those are at record levels. And then finally, you know, this whole concept of value now um, is being implemented across almost every sector of healthcare. So if you look back, for example, 
you know, five or six years ago, it was really only hospitals that had readmission penalties um, and hospitals that had a value-based purchasing program being rolled out. And now here we sit today where um, most every area of post-acute care either has a value-based purchasing program um, in implementation or in pilot. Um, readmission penalties now affect lots of different types of providers. Uh, physicians are now in you know, a program called MIPS um, under MACRA. And so you know, whatever kind of provider you are, you're not immune to or sitting on the sidelines of uh, this pay for value or the pursuit of pay for value. So I think all those things collectively have created uh, momentum that now we've reached the tipping point where um, I don't think it will slow down. If anything, I think it will accelerate and that'll ultimately move us to uh, both feet in the canoe. I think the, the question is, when does that happen? Um, I don't know that anyone has that answer, but I, I do think that's the direction we're headed. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting you know, uh, lay of the land, so to speak, as, as you think about uh, what has changed and how has it changed and what programs have been adopted. Uh, I think it's a unique perspective, uh, one that, that we should all be thinking about. And, you know, the biggest challenge with the value-based programs, you know, in my mind, Brian, is the conflicting incentives and you know while the, sh the 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 tide has shifted there's still a lot that is is fee for for service you know and and um and so i'd like to get your your thoughts on that you know um because there's a lot of well-intentioned people out there wanting to make a splash in this value-based care uh realm um what, how do you get around that still fee-for-service structure that exists? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So, and, and I completely agree on the conflicting incentives. And, and we actually see them in, in kind of two major areas. Um, the first is, I think, probably the purest um, characterization of what you're, you're mentioning here, which is um, when you pursue a certain reimbursement system or alternative payment model, you may win in one area of your health system, but you may lose in another area. For example, you know, I've had the experience where we're sitting in a boardroom and there's the population health executives on one side of the table and the hospital executives on the other side. And the reality is if the population health executives save money and reduce um, healthcare utilization, namely through readmission reduction and avoiding hospitalizations, the hospital executives can't meet their budget requirements right. <laughs> and often can't cover, you know, some of their very strict um, bond and other debt covenants that are built into, you know, funding uh, the physical plant that they deliver their services out of. So I think those very real tangible um, conflicts do still exist. Um, you've seen some in healthcare, you know, accelerate kind of getting out of that rather than being paralyzed by it. You know, uh, systems like Advocate Healthcare in Chicago, where they just kind of pushed the gas, all systems go towards value and they took on risk. And, and that was the catalyst that kind of shifted their entire system. They've probably done it more than um, 
other systems in terms of the pace at which they've uh, undergone that pursuit. Um, the second conflict, though, I, I don't want to lose because it's important, and, and it's almost a cultural or behavioral conflict, mm-hmm. which is, you know, how do you go about the day-to-day, you know, the fires that, that consume our day-to-day? Hospital executives are notorious for filling their days with meetings um, and an inordinate amount of email volume. And so how do you get out of that cycle where you're just running from the next meeting to the next meeting, um, going through kind of your cycles of business on an annual basis, cleaning your inbox and trying to get it organized, you know, all those things that can in and of themselves take 12 to 14 hours a day. But when you do that, you leave innovation on the sideline. And, and that's the other challenge we've seen is, you know, just having the capacity, the attention span, um, but the wherewithal to kind of break through some of those cultural and behavioral norms to make room for innovation. And that innovation, um, at least in today's world, is, is often defined by or kind of wrapped around some sort of payment innovation or, or risk-based um, model. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, thanks for sharing that, Brian. Uh, it's uh, it's interesting, right? I mean, yeah, you, you you mentioned that 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 boardroom, and you got the pop health folks on one side and the acute care folks on the other, and the conflict, and then the culture. There's certainly a lot for us to to think about here. Give me an example of of some of the things that that you and your firm has done to, to help companies get both feet in the canoe? Yeah, so I think one of the things that we have the benefit of is we're, we're, we're not a provider. Um, so we're not constrained, if you will, by the day-to-day. Um, this is what we do. It's, it's what we do every day. It is what powers not 50%, but 100% of our business model and our revenue. Um, and, you know, because of that kind of freedom, um, we can innovate and we can invest in areas that, um, that pay us back when this is our payment mechanism. So we're not, um, we don't have a foot in the canoe and on the dock, we have both feet in, in a canoe. And so I, help, I, I think that helps us be uh, a value-added partner and an enabler to those that are uh, kind of undergoing this this pursuit, um, and an example of that, you know, is we invest in people, um, nurses in the field, and those nurses manage our patients for an extended period of time. And quite frankly, a hospital doesn't get paid to have a nursing staff sitting out in the field managing patients after they leave the hospital. They're paid for uh, their nurses to do what they need to do to stabilize and, and treat and um, um, operate on you know, the patients that are sitting in their four walls. And so again, because our business model is a longitudinal, more value-oriented payment structure in, in every case, we can invest in those people and we can put them with patients and families um, as a value-oriented um, navigator, if you will, and our model pays us back for those. So it's interesting. I mean, I'd love to learn more about your your business model, uh, Brian. How does it work? Yeah. So we essentially partner with any entity that holds payment risk. 
Okay. It is most frequently, you know, today a hospital or a physician group practice, but in the future, it could be, you know, a variety of post-acute providers, um, um, new providers that haven't really held risk um, up to this point, like hospice um, providers, for example. So there's, there's nothing um, about our model that says this is who we have to serve. It's just our model um, is predicated on having some sort of payment risk um, such that, again, you can create the return for the ability to um, equalize or improve quality and then hold utilization and costs down. So we do that today um, by partnering with those customers of ours who either hold risk um, that we can share with them or we hold risk on behalf of them directly with a payer typically Medicare in today's world. And then we share in our results together. Um, and so for example, under the BPCI advanced program, we're what's referred to as a convener. So we take the payment risk on behalf of, again, a hospital or a physician group practice. Uh, we um, contract directly with Medicare for that risk. And then we work alongside the hospital partners and physician group practices to put about a whole host of changes, quality improvement initiatives, et cetera, that seek to improve on the things that we know drive costs, such as readmissions, um, uh, expensive utilization of institutional settings, um, uh, uh, longer lengths of stay or more intensity of service than is needed, all those things. The way we do that um, at, at ICS is we marry people with technology. And so I mentioned a little bit about our nurses. We put nurses in the field um, who meet a patient um, at a hospital stay. And then we manage that patient, whatever they need, wherever they are, whatever happens to them, good or bad, we manage that patient um, under the BPCIA program for 90 days after uh, they are discharged from that hospital. So we're there every step of the way um, managing their care transitions, interacting with the patient and the family, monitoring status changes. If there are others involved in their care, we are working alongside as someone who has the history and the knowledge and the information about what's happened to the patient up to that point. Um, and so that's what our people in the field do that has value to, to us, to our customer, and then certainly to our patients and families. And then we've invested in technology. Um, again, this is where you know, a, a hospital system or another provider, they invest in technology that helps them manage within their four walls, mainly, you know, an EMR system. And there isn't a medical record system out there today that is site agnostic, that thinks about a patient longitudinally and allows a clinical team uh, to take in information and manage that patient's needs um, and monitor them um, over the course of time, wherever they may be. Um, and our patients are often in three, four, or five different settings in that 90 plus day period. Um, and so we've had to build that technology from scratch. So we do have a care management platform um, that we've invested in that, that interacts with a lot of the other medical records vendors and or solutions providers out there, but its sole purpose is to enable our nurses to be effective and efficient at managing patients longitudinally.
No, it makes a lot of sense. Thanks for diving into that. And, and folks, um, you probably know this, but it's always worth noting, um, BPCI bundled payment, uh, uh, bundled payment care improvements is, you know, it's a CMS innovation and it, it, it's a, it's great that you're focused there, Brian, you and your team and, you know, the ability to execute on, 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 you know, the, the care strategy after, after the patients leave the hospital, I think is where the, where a really big opportunity is. I'd love to hear from you, maybe a, a, like one of your biggest wins with the work that you've done. Yeah. So we've seen, you know, huge results from, um, from our efforts. So it, it is validating to our approach and our model um, and to ongoing investments in the things that we started out investing in. Um, you know, we've seen drastic double digit percentage in uh, decreases in cost. Uh, we've seen quality um, stay the same or go up in every category, including a reduction in uh, hospital readmissions. Um, and, and Brian, if I can ask, um, when you say cost, are you saying cost of care? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Cost to cost to the payer, whoever the payer might be. Yep. Yep. I'm um, with you. Just wanted to clarify. Yep. Yep. Not cost to the patient in terms of like copays. And right. 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 Yep. Um, and then, you know, our patients use less institutional care. So, you know, we get our patients home more frequently and sooner uh, than they have been home in the past. And so that's obviously another win, not just from the perspective of the financial outcomes, because obviously it's the least expensive setting to treat a patient within, but it's also where they want to be, right? Um, you know, yep. patients, if you give them any choice to be treated anywhere, um, mo the overwhelming majority of them will say, treat me at home. Um, and then we also know by being at home, they avoid other adverse circumstances that happen uh, when they are in an institutional healthcare setting, whether that's, um, you know, infections or falls or, you know, other things that just happen um, in our operational setting. So, you know, our, our results across the board have been uh, overwhelmingly positive um, and we continue to invest in trying to figure out what, what's the next um, innovation, what's the next area where we can see improvement. Um, and, and that's a bit of an iterative process that, that sort of never ends uh, if you're in our work. No, it's, it's great. And it definitely sounds like you guys are putting in the innovations to continue improving care and lowering cost. I, and I'm wondering when, when, when your nurses are going to the home, what percentage of the results come from finding problems in the home or like, you know, somebody's carpet is folded, it becomes a fall risk or, you know, where are your medications, that kind of stuff. Yep. Yep. So it's a huge issue. So our, just to be clear, our nurses today, ICS nurses do not go directly into the home. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Uh, gotcha. We do partner with others um, mm -hmm. who go into the home, such as home health organizations. Um, um, and we, and then we also do follow up with our patients, um, some of which are video enabled. So we can see sometimes that there are issues, you know, in the environment. Um, but those issues you're, you're pointing out are, are not insignificant. Um, you know, whether it's 
doing a true medication reconciliation based on which pill bottles are actually in the medicine cabinet. Yeah. Um, or to the environmental things you just mentioned, like no slip rugs and grab bars. Um, we've also built ramps for our patients. Um, so access into the home, yeah. you know, it was a huge barrier. And again, it, it, it keeps people in institutional settings when they could be going home if they had access to the home with home health support. So there's a whole host of those environmental um, and even to add on other kind of social determinants issues like, you know, nutrition, um, right. um, and transportation, all kinds of things that are barriers to kind of maintaining um, an effective life in their communities that we run across. And, and we connect our patients to those resources uh, very frequently. And any new market that we go to, uh, we create a market-specific inventory of those partners and providers so that we have um, those resources available because those issues frequently and commonly occur. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Thanks for clarifying there. And and, and so, Brian, with the nurses that are on your team, so when you typically start working with the provider, how are those nurses deployed? I mean, do you – tell me more about that. Yeah, so we have a defined group of patients that we're accountable for, mm, um, okay. either based on our agreement with the customer or based on our agreement with Medicare. And so we create a technology feed uh, between the, the hospital and our system that identifies those patients and notifies um, our nurses that there is a new patient um, in the system. Mm-hmm. And so our nurses then deploy to the hospital regularly. They round uh, with case management teams and uh, different floor teams. Uh, they also visit the patient and the family in the hospital prior to discharge. In most cases, uh, mm-hmm. we don't catch 100%, but that's our goal is to catch 100%. Sure. Um, and then they follow those patients um, after they discharge from the hospital. So they are often involved in the discharge decision-making in terms of what's the best setting for the patient, who's the best provider given their unique needs, um, what are the expectations that we have of that provider as we send the patient from the hospital to the next setting of care, Um, and then they follow the patient into that setting. So for example, many of our patients are sent to skilled nursing facilities uh, following a hospitalization. Um, Mm -hmm. Our nurses round in our high volume facilities Um, attend weekly meetings on our patients um, in those facilities. Um, We're constantly staying in contact um, with those care teams and and there's expectations back and forth around, you know, how information flows, what happens if there's um, a a care escalation, what happens if, God forbid, the patient is readmitted to the hospital. Um, You know, there's expectations and communication loops that that um, address all of the different scenarios that could happen to a patient while they're there. The other thing, hoping that the patient just progresses according to the care plan, is we know when the patient's discharge is, the anticipated discharge. Um, And so we are actively working on um, that discharge from the very first day that the patient shows up in that setting. I think that's really cool. And, and um, why did you decide to tackle this niche, Brian? 
Yeah. So it's a little bit, it's like anything in your career, right? It's um, a little bit by design and a little bit by luck and a little bit by mistake. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, so I got into um, an area of healthcare called post-acute healthcare uh -huh. uh, when I was on the provider side. And this was kind of pre-affordable care act, pre-alternative payment model. Um, and so you know, that's where I grew up, if you will, on the operational side mm -hmm. um, and learned those businesses, you know, hands on in those businesses, the strategy that impacts those businesses, the reimbursement systems, um, which are unique in each area of post-acute. Um, and then it just so happened that the Affordable Care Act was passed and um, it extended kind of payment models um, from hospital into a lot of those settings and what slowly became um, ev evident and obvious to the industry was those settings now had a different level of importance um, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, coordinating with them, understanding what drives their business, outlining expectations for what happens to patients in those settings. Um, and so it just so happened that that was the area of healthcare where my career began operationally. And so it allowed me um, a lot of opportunity to pivot, quite honestly, and do uh, the really interesting work that was a byproduct of that elevation of post-acute on everybody's radar screen. You know, everything I've worked from Wall Street to um, post-acute policy with CMS to alternative payment models, as we've discussed, um, uh, to, with payers. I mean, there's just a wide range of the entire industry that um, has really set about to tackle, understand, and improve upon post-acute care. And it just so happens that was where um, I grew up professionally. Love it. No, thanks for sharing that. I was just curious because what a niche. And obviously there's a need. And uh, yeah, I always wonder how people get started with what they do. So Brian, um, maybe you could share a, a setback and uh, and what you learned from that setback. We learned most from those. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, there's not a, a big setback, if you will, that I can kind of point to um, in my career. I, I will say, you know, what I've, I've learned throughout my career is um, to try to fail fast and mm -hmm. fail small. Um, and I'll give you examples, you know, in our clinical model, uh, for example, you know, we're constantly looking at new things to infuse into the model, um, you know, whether it's telehealth or um, should we add a community health worker? Um, should we send clinicians into the home? Um, do we invest in some other technology um, on the site? There's a whole host of, um, you know, do we employ a pharmacist? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a whole host of questions that come out of, you know, if you're trying to improve care and the experience for patients, what could you do? Blank sheet of paper here. Um, and we're constantly testing and experimenting with, you know, all of those things I just mentioned and some things I haven't mentioned. Um, and they have different results. You know, some things come out and um, the, the return, if you will, or the improvement is, uh, what we expected and we choose to invest. And then, then there's other areas where, you know, we're surprised by the outcome. And so, you know, what we try to do is get to that conclusion pretty quickly. Um, and then we also try to do it on a small scale. So for example, you know, if we were evaluating whether or not to hire a pharmacist into our model, 
we wouldn't go hire pharmacists in every market we work in um, right. across the board and invest in them. You know, we would choose a small isolated pilot, you know, figure out how the pharmacist resources would be deployed um, and then test it um, um, in a kind of isolated experimental type of uh, group compared to, you know, another control group within um, our purview and then compare the results. And by the way, we have not tested the pharmacist um, model. We've talked about it. So um, it is just an example for illustration, but you know, that's some of the lessons I've learned is, um, you know, fail fast and fail small. And, and we do that, you know, all the time. We have a clinical strategy leader. Um, her sole job is to figure out where do we test next and then how do we, you know, um, either succeed um, or fail fast and, and fail, fail small. Love it. No, it sounds like you have a great, uh, great way to, to innovate there. And, and what about the other side of the coin? What's one of the proudest experience you've had to date? Yeah. So a lot of them, I mean, again, that's why I got into healthcare, right? Is it's, mm-hmm. it's the myriad of, you know, literally thousands of moments where you see the impact you're making on a patient and family, or you're hearing from your clinicians, um, you know, a really positive outcome that could have been vastly different. Um, so those things keep you going. Those kind of things that, that ground you in the mission of the work certainly keep me going and, and make me so passionate about healthcare. Um, but setting those aside and to talk about something personally, um, you know, I, in 2017, I was, um, honored enough to be named one of healthcare's rising stars by Becker's. Um, And I think for me, you know, that was, it was important, right? It was validating that, you know, what I was doing was making a difference, um, that that difference somehow stood out of the crowd and and had unique value in the industry. And I think that's what anyone wants out of their professional life is to feel valued and that you're making an impact and that that impact is seen and heard and felt by those that you want to see and hear and feel it. Um, and so, you know, that was a, certainly a, a career moment for me. Congratulations on that. Thank you. It feels like forever ago, even though it was only uh, 2017, <laughs> but that's the way things are, right? You kind of, uh, uh, you celebrate them uh, in the moment and then they're kind of a distant memory. Yeah, no, hey, but that's, uh, that's fantastic. Kudos for you and, and your team for, for doing what you guys do to make healthcare better and less costly. Uh, what would you say is the most exciting project you're working on? Yeah, well, we actually have um, a, a new batch, if you will, of customers coming online. So um, for those who may not be familiar with the BPCI advanced program uh, run by CMS, there was an initial application period in 2018 um, where kind of the first cohort of participants went in, we participated in that cohort. Um, CMS reopened the application period uh, earlier this year, uh, and applications were due this summer. And we've just received the data files to be able to decide, you know, which clinical conditions we're going to take risk on and, and what our partnerships are going to look like. And we have to commit to those. Uh, by November, the end of November of this year, and we will start with that new cohort on January 1 of 2020. Um, and so that's super exciting, right? It's the opportunity to, to grow what we do, to serve more patients, to achieve the outcomes I've spoken about uh, in this discussion for more of our customers and more markets. And so 
that's a huge focus of ours right now and will be uh, our priority focus as we go through the rest of this year and then early uh, in the new year. That's awesome. Congratulations on that. Uh, sounds like it'll be an exciting new niche. And you guys are working directly with, uh, with Medicare on that? We are, yep. Again, we're serving in that role that Medicare refers to as the convener. Um, so we are still partnering with hospitals and physician group practices, um, but we are stepping in between them and Medicare and taking the risk on behalf of them um, and then, you know, working collaboratively to, um, to achieve the, the quality outcomes I've discussed on, on, on this uh, call. Yeah. And, and so how exactly do you take the risk, Brian? So you are, I guess I, I'm trying to understand that better. Yep. Yeah. So, so there's is that a is, common question or. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, people have different connotations when you say the word bundle payment, right? Some people think you just get one pot of money and you have to, you know, dole it out if you will. And then once you're out of money, you're out of money. Yeah. <laughs> or if you, you never get out of money, then it's kind of a win. Um, so yes, it, it, it is a common question. So essentially the way, BPCI Advanced works is, you know, CMS, you define a partner. So let's just say a hospital in this case. Mm -hmm. um, CMS looks back retrospectively on a three-year period and says, what happened to patients coming out of that hospital? What services did they use? What cost did they incur? And they set a baseline. Um, and then they take 3% off of that baseline that becomes your target price. Um, and so going forward, you have to manage to that target price. Okay. Um, and so, so that, if you, if you can come under that, then you win. Obviously, if you, if you cannot, then uh, you owe CMS money back. So it is a, it is a two-sided uh, risk program and that if you spend more than the target price, you do owe CMS money. Got it. And so costs, services, baseline over three years, and then the goal is to hit that baseline minus 3%. And that's, right. and that's where you guys come in. So how do you take that risk on? Are you just managing these patients directly to get there? That's right. Yep. So it's the combination of that people married to technology that I mentioned earlier. So we deploy that in the market around the patient's that we have accountability for. And then our model um, plays itself out with, again, luckily very positive outcomes that we've experienced thus far. Wow. And, and, if, and if that number, I mean, I, I don't ever wish this, but what if it doesn't hit? What if you can't hit that 3%? Does that mean you guys pay that, that spread? It does, yep. Wow, yep. So under our current contracts with Medicare, we owe them that spread, yes. Wow, that's brave. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it, it's interesting, right? Um, <laughs> it's very interesting. I'm glad we went here because I, you know, I was, I was making a lot of assumptions and to be honest with you, I was wrong in what I was assuming. So I'm glad I asked. Um, and I, I mean, I'm just like, I just think you're that much cooler because of this. <laughs> well, and if you think about it, it's the exact opposite of the way fee for service works, right? Um, it is, you know, fee for service, you do more, you get paid more, presumably. Um, and there's really no check and balance that whatever you did was effective and efficient for the patient. Um, and so that's what's cool about these new programs is, you know, there's incentives that are aligned um, and then there are mechanisms in place to 
monitor to make sure that you know everything is is moving towards this uh, dual goal of being you know really efficient in the healthcare that we deliver from a cost perspective, but also really effective uh, from a quality outcomes perspective. Totally makes a lot of sense. Appreciate you sharing that, Brian, and uh, kudos to you and your team for the work that you do to make healthcare better. Uh, what's next is the lightning round, which is pretty fast, followed by a book you recommend to the listeners. You ready? Sure. All right. Thank. <laughs> sure. Uh, uh, this is pretty, pretty, pretty fun and pretty easy. So, what's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? Uh, I think aligning incentives. What's the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? Not investing in the people that drive healthcare. How do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? You make learning a part of your uh, daily task list and part of your culture. Love that. What's the one area of focus that drives everything at Integrated Care Solutions? Our patients. Um, it's about making the patient outcomes and experience better than it otherwise would have been. And what book would you recommend to the listeners, Brian? Yeah, so it's an interesting book that I actually got exposed to earlier in my career. It's uh, Coase's and Posner's Leadership Challenge. Um, and there was a leadership uh, program that was designed around that um, earlier in my career, which I participated in. And it kind of sets out five different behaviors of um, a good leader. And I have kept those five behaviors at the forefront of my mind. And, you know, often we even ask myself, am I fill in the blank with whatever behavior um, in this, in this instance. And so um, the leadership challenge, I highly recommend it has been very impactful to uh, my professional career, but also to my leadership journey. Very cool. What a great recommendation. And folks, if you want the full transcript, links to the book, links to Integrated Care Solutions and what they're doing, just go to outcomesrocket.health in the search bar, type in Brian Fuller, F-U-L-L-E-R, and you'll be able to check that out. If you want to just check out Integrated Care Solutions directly, just go to integratedcaresolutions.com. So, uh, listen, Brian, this has been a ton of fun. I'd love if you could just leave us with the closing thought and then the best place where the listeners could continue the conversation with you. Yeah. So, I, um, I'll, I'll just say, you know, a lot of people use the term disruptive right now, um, in healthcare. And, you know, I would tend to say, um, um, I like to think about disruption as all the positive that it brings, you know, we grow through disruption and I think we as an industry will grow through the disruption that we're feeling right now. And, and ultimately, it will make our, our sector, our industry, and our patients uh, better for it. So I think it poses you know, lots more opportunities than it does challenges and drawbacks. Um, but you know, the challenges and drawbacks are part of, of the journey for sure. Love it. And if the listeners wanted to learn more about you or the company, what, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, certainly. So you can, you know, go to our, our website, which you just mentioned is integratedcaresolutions.com. Um, you know, they're certainly uh, welcome to check me out. I'm on LinkedIn and, you know, send me messages um, there. I believe you spelled my name. Brian is with an I, uh, not a Y and Fuller is F-U-L-L-E-R. So I'd love to connect with, with you on, on LinkedIn as well. Outstanding. Brian, this has been 
insightful, informative, and uh, just want to say thanks again for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.